Welcome to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a personal finance blogger here in New Zealand. And in this podcast, I chat to a diverse bunch of people, I learn their story and I condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, their tips and point of view on personal finance here in New Zealand. Now, in today's episode, I had a chat with Australian-based 48-year-old Kiwi dad of two, John. Now, John went through a separation and a financial crisis some years ago, but is now on track to be mortgage-free within the next four years. The key for him has been educating himself about how to handle his personal finances so he could get some control of his life again. He reckons he has read every single personal finance book in his library and he was keen to share with other single parents, particularly dads, that they can get their finances sorted too. He calls himself a work in progress and shows that you can come back from the financial blow that comes from a separation if you have a plan and plenty of time. In his case, he has allowed himself 10 years to get it done. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Now, before I jump into it, I just wanted to give a shout out to Pocketsmith, today's sponsor. Actually, while I'm on the subject, I can't stress enough how much I appreciate them being such a long-term sponsor. Their software has truly helped me on a personal level because I use their app to budget my own household putia. But creating these podcasts is a ton of mahi, a ton of work. And being paid a little to create them really does take the pressure off. So thanks guys, and now for that advertisement I promised you. After many years of running my blog and podcast out of any room in the house that would give me some privacy... I decided the time had come to create a studio in the garden to call my own. Using Pocketsmith, I tracked the entire project by creating a category called Writing Studio, and I set a realistic budget of just $2,200. With such a tight budget, using Pocketsmith helped keep track of the exact cost of the build, tracking both the money spent on new and recycled products, and the money received from selling unwanted goods to fund the project. It gave me peace of mind to head into a project with such a strong financial plan, But that doesn't mean I didn't overspend though. In fact, Pocketsmith let me know that I'd overspent by $217. That's not Pocketsmith's fault, entirely my own. And the studio I have now was so worth every extra dollar spent. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. John and I first connected in 2021 via email when he was seeking information about starting up his own blog. John's not his real name. For family reasons, he wanted to keep his identity private, which is absolutely fine with me. It's not uncommon for wannabe bloggers to get in touch and I often connect with prospective bloggers to help them get started. He wanted to create an online space where he could share his journey with money, mainly because he wanted to help other single parents by showing them how it is possible to achieve FI. As a single dad with 50-50 shared custody of two school-aged children, he often feels like a forgotten demographic, and it was hard for him to find people to whom he could relate. Sadly, his blog has not eventuated, but... I thought that if I could capture his story and what he has done with his finances, then this very podcast could be a useful resource nonetheless. And even though he now lives in Australia, he gets to be on my podcast because New Zealand is where he was born and grew up, only moving to Oz in his mid-30s. He grew up in one of New Zealand's biggest cities as one of four kids, 
Early in life, he said that they were fairly comfortable, even having two cars at one point, which was fairly uncommon back in the 1970s and 80s, and they lived in their own home. His mum had stopped work when she had children, which was common for the time, and his dad worked full-time in what back then was a fledgling IT industry. But things were to change when his dad died from an illness that he had been fighting for a long time. John was just eight at the time, and he said that his father's death had a huge and sudden impact. It felt like they became skint overnight, he said. His mum was left to raise four children on what was referred to as a widow's benefit, and he said that sadly there was a real stigma attached to being on a benefit. But honestly, what other choice was there? His mum had been out of the workforce for about 13 years by the time his father passed away, and as soon as she was able, she went back to work. Not easy with young kids at home, as there was just not the same support offered to working parents as there is today. He said of his mum that her only choice was to keep moving forward. She couldn't stop. They had their own home, and they were lucky in that one respect, except he remembers it being very cold to live in, but they just had to motor through. She just carried on, because what else could you do? John was young, and of course, he couldn't really understand the situation fully, and he said that it is only when he talks to his mum now that he fully realises the pressure they were under, but he does remember that he would see a lot of his friends going out and doing stuff that he missed out on. He said he was very active, and that food to fuel his activity was a big part of his life. He remembers visiting his best mate's house, and he opened up his fridge, and there was a whole cooked roast chicken just sitting in the fridge. John thought it was incredible that no one had eaten it because it would not have lasted two minutes in his house because he said that they were hungry at times. There was no excess, just the minimum to get by. Now, it's an insight into what children take from living without. It's the tangible things that they can see that make them realise their situation might be different to others. And he said that this period of life has influenced his siblings for sure. And to this day, his brother can't bear to have an empty fridge. John attended his local school and then went straight to university at the age of 18 where he started a Bachelor of Arts in Mathematics. He took out a student loan to cover the cost but he did also work and make a bit of money throughout his study. Having lived on a tight income for so many years, he said that being poor as a student was just par for the course and all up his loan balance when he completed his degree was not too bad. He couldn't quite recall but he thinks it was about $15,000. He paid it off about 20 years ago and has not given it another thought since, and he made the very valid point that as soon as you pay it off, without those 12% payments coming out anymore, your income jumps, which makes it really worth doing. I was pleased to hear he paid it all off, especially given that he is a maths major. Often they are the ones coming up with long-winded reasons why they shouldn't pay it off, saying things like, inflation will take care of it over the next 40 years and what have you. Be like John, I say, pay it off and forget about it. He said that going to uni at the age of 18, straight out of school, is a tough call because there are not many who can focus on their studies at that age. As well as studying and working, he was also really focused on his sport, something that was and still is a big part of his life. He only spent two years at university, therefore not completing his degree, before he actually headed overseas to play his chosen sport for a couple of years. Now, playing sport had been his primary thing, but he returned home with injuries that stopped him from playing, and he said it was really sobering, working out where to go from there. Because he played what he called a minority sport, although he sounded extremely good at it, New Zealand used to pretty much only celebrate the achievements of rugby playing All Blacks, 
So despite all the mahi that goes into competing at a top level, he didn't even put his achievements on his CV when he took a desk job at a bank around the year 2000. And that's such a shame, and even I, someone who knows close to zero about sport, can see that it teaches such a variety of skills that any workplace would willingly want. I think times have changed now for the better, and prospective employers see the merits of a commitment to a sport. His bank job, he said, was a leave-your-brain-at-home kind of job, so he went back to uni and he finished his degree, and completing his qualification helped him start a new career in the energy industry. Now, during this time, he also met and married his first wife. They were together for 12 years, and when their marriage ended, they had to settle up all of their finances by dividing everything down the middle, 50-50. He said that it was an equitable settlement with no arguments, but still, it is always quite the financial blow for both parties when you halve your net worth. And sometimes when I'm questioned about why it is worth being debt-free and building up wealth when you have a couple earning a good combined income, The cynical part of me will say that it's worth it so that, if you split up, there is a large amount of money to divide, meaning you both have a large amount of money to start your life over. After his divorce, he was able to purchase a home, and that is where he stayed until the age of about 35 when he left New Zealand for Australia in 2009. As seems to be the theme with the people I've chatted to who moved to or from Australia, it was finding a partner that made them move. And the fact that they were pregnant with their first child and that she wanted to be closer to her family. He found similar work in the energy industry in Australia and before long they had their second child. Then John's career made a shift about 10 years ago into the IT industry and both work and whānau have kept him in Australia ever since. In order to get set up in Australia, he sold his house in New Zealand and purchased a similar priced home for his family in Australia. Due to the sale of his home plus the fact he had a good job, he was able to fully set his family of three, soon to be four, up. He said that his partner didn't bring much financially to the relationship at all, so at the time they felt fortunate that he could get them into a house. He said that the day they actually purchased the house, he was in the office at work and he ended up putting his name on the papers. There was no time to shuffle the paperwork back home to put her name on it too, and although it sounds like this caused an upset at the time, in the long term this would actually work out well for his partner. Although I know that sounds a bit suspicious, it was not. With his first marriage, everything was shared and he went all in. And when he met his new partner, everything was shared as well. And having had kids together, well, you can't get more all in than that. He was working full time and she was staying at home and not contributing financially, but was absolutely pulling her weight as a stay-at-home mum. So they were both contributing to their relationship. For a period of time, life was good. And they were just cruising along, but after about six years together, in 2014, their relationship ended. It was a real wake-up call and the beginning of an immensely difficult time for John, one that all these years later he is still working his way through. Whereas his first marriage had ended very fairly, with both parties in agreement, not so this time around. He said that it got really ugly and he got taken to the clean, as he said. The woman he once loved was absolutely ruthless, he said, at getting the largest financial settlement that she could. He was on his own in a different country and going through a relationship loss while trying to co-parent two kids who were just four and two. Trying to sort that out was hard enough, but then having the person you were once in love with nailing you to the wall, well, any of these things on their own were tough, but all of them together, well, it was really, really hard, he said. 
Due to the emotional pressure and the pressure on his time co-parenting, he just couldn't perform at work for a long time. He was a right mess, he said, but due to a sympathetic boss, he managed to hang on to his job. He felt completely isolated, and although people offered advice here and there, they were well-meaning, but they didn't really help. In terms of financial settlement, she requested that he pay her rent for the rest of her life. In the end, he paid her rent for the first year. This was made partly bearable because he could also see that he was providing a home for his kids when they were not with him, but it stung when she moved her new partner in as well. His family told him to always focus on his children, and he has made that his priority ever since. He had bought $100,000 into the relationship from the sale of his New Zealand home and the purchase of their Australian one, but his ex-partner brought no money into the relationship. Lawyers calculated their time together, plus the future needs and income for each of them, and in the end, she walked away with $100,000 plus ongoing child support payments. She went and bought a house of her own and also got a minimum wage job. And now looping back to her not being on the house deed, this actually worked out in her favour because she was able to show that she was a first home buyer and get some government support to get into her own first home. Because of her low income and the fact she earns a lot less than him, he is of course legally obligated to pay her child support, which started out at $200 a week, but when she lost her job more recently, it went up to $300 a week. Keeping their social services agency informed of her employment status seems to be an ongoing, difficult and confusing task. He decided that he had to hold onto the family home to provide both himself and his kids some stability. So he bought her out of the house, which was financially crippling. He went to his bank, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, and he said they too were merciless at the time, making him pay LMI or Lenders Mortgage Insurance, even though he pleaded for clemency, which added even more costs. By this stage, he had owned the house for a few years and was always ahead of his payments, and despite him pleading with them to give a guy a break, they couldn't care less. In the end, he signed up for a $450,000 mortgage that was higher than the value of the home. Now, relationships are complicated things, so I was surprised, but not really surprised, that they rekindled their relationship a few years after it all fell apart, which he said might sound odd after what had happened, but he said he did it to protect his kids, and as a parent, my heart goes out to him here. He didn't want some random guy around his kids, and he genuinely thought that if he could delay that happening, for as long as he could, then he would. If he can hear his kids playing in the other room, life feels normal. If he can't, he really yearns for them, he said, and I can absolutely understand that feeling. So he rented his home out for that year and they kept their finances separate. But although having his kids with them 24-7 was wonderful, life with their mother simply was not, and they ended their relationship once and for all in 2017. Now, it's time for some numbers, which he started to track in late 2017. At that time, he was earning $135,000 a year gross. The value of his house was $450,000, and his mortgage was $450,000. He was paying about $10,000 a year in child support. He also had a credit card debt of $2,000 and zero in savings. There was no money to spare at all. With these numbers, you can see why the bank insisted on him getting mortgage lender's insurance. They clearly thought that his chances of failure were high enough to warrant it. John was under immense financial pressure with so many different things pulling on that one precious income he had coming in. 
He is supporting himself and his children when they are with him, his kids' child support to his ex-partner. He is also supporting a relative of hers to babysit his children when they are with him, but he is at work so that they can have some continuity of care and a really settled life. Because he doesn't have any family support of his own in Australia, his options are fairly limited. These are just things he has to deal with and his focus remains solely on his kids. He settled into the grind, just keeping all of his balls in the air for the next couple of years. I asked him what advice he would give to others and what strategies could they implement to prevent them going down the same path. Knowing what he knows now, he said to do everything you can to mend your relationship to avoid it ending. He is not just thinking from a financial standpoint, but because of your kids. Put your children first because separating is really going to change your life and theirs forever. If you do separate, chances are you are under great financial stress. So make sure you educate yourself. Go to the library and learn for free. He thinks he has now read every finance book in the library. Because all of this information will give you some degree of control and a plan. What he has found really interesting and helpful is that he has a bunch of friends who have also gone through a divorce and they were really able to help him, whereas his friends in stable marriages have avoided him. It's his mates who have been through it that are picking up the phone, and that is his advice to others, to pick up the phone and ring your mates. Not a text, actually speak with your mates, either on the phone or one-on-one in person. Be supported or be the supporter. He still feels isolated from his whanau and friends back in New Zealand, but there are a lot of good things in his life in Australia and he is trying to do his best. After being in a bit of a daze for a couple of years and after developing some medical issues that were finally put down to excessive amounts of stress, in around 2018 he picked up a copy of the Australian book The Barefoot Investor by author Scott Pape and it simply changed his life. When we spoke in April of 2022, he had been following his methodology for nearly four years now and had made immense strides with his finances during that time. Interestingly, he said, the figures which I'll come to shortly are symptomatic. The real reward is the feeling of control that he has in his life now. He said that he is no longer at the mercy of fate, and he now has a financial buffer that gives him peace of mind. He appreciates too that he is lucky in the respect that he has a good job, and that has been a true godsend during this time. So what did The Barefoot Investor and all the other books he read teach him to do? He said that financially this breakup took him back a decade and he was feeling really lost and in a daze post-separation with the emotional and financial burden of his life. But that book changed his life. In fact, he said that it was an epiphany when he picked it up. Although he was apprehensive about following the steps outlined in the book, he did what it said. And over the course of just a couple of months, he had suddenly saved all this money, and paid a chunk off his mortgage. He has since given that book to a number of people. That quick progress spurred him on, and he followed the barefoot steps. He followed the account structures, just like you see in the book. He wiped his small debt out. He built up his savings. This is a massive thing, he said. You will never worry about money again if you have a cash buffer. If his car breaks down or he has to rush home to Aotearoa, he will be okay. I'll put your curious mind at ease right now. There is no convoluted path he was following to get himself financially stable. Simply following the barefoot steps has been his secret. And that is no secret at all. It's in the book and I really, really encourage you to go and read it. 
His emergency fund sat at $10,000 for quite a while, but now he's built it up to $15,000 and he could make the stretch a very long way if he needs to and still cover his outgoings, including his mortgage. Now it's time for a few more numbers. By the end of 2021, he was earning $148,000 a year. The value of his house was $750,000 and his mortgage was down to $250,000. He categorically said, I will be done in four years with my mortgage. It feels extremely doable. He was still paying about $10,000 each year in child support, although that amount has now increased. He has no credit card and $15,000 in savings. We talked about his Australian super scheme and he pointed out that there is a big difference between that and KiwiSaver, you don't say. In fact, he said KiwiSaver seems to be a bit of a joke compared to the Australian super scheme. Throughout all of this upheaval in his life, his contributions to his scheme have continued. When they separated, she didn't touch his super, but he actually didn't have much in it at that time anyway. Apparently the law has changed now though and super would be split. Currently, his employer pays an additional 10% on top of his income of $148,000 into his super fund, and this is compulsory for all employers. Compare that to KiwiSaver, where a tiny 3% tends to be the norm, unless you can negotiate otherwise. Plus, he contributes an additional 5% of his pre-tax income to his fund. He roughly has about $25,000 going in each year, and he said you have to max it out if you can afford to do so. He has it all invested in higher-risk international shares, which are super volatile. But because he still has a long working life left, he is prepared to weather the inevitable ups and downs of the market. John currently has $230,000 in his super account, and by the time he retires at the age of 66 in about 18 years, by his calculations, he should have a substantial amount of around $750 to $1 million. I think he will be closer to the million-dollar mark. He has created his own kind of artificial scarcity, something he read about in the book The Millionaire Next Door, deliberately making himself poor on purpose so that he can have a better future. With his fortnightly paycheck, he systematically sends money where it needs to go, keeping his expenses as lean as he can, meaning that sometimes he is scratching around to find a few dollars until the next payment arrives. He dumped the Commonwealth Bank because basically he hates them. And when he made the switch to St. George Bank, he got a better interest rate and they paid him $3,000 after switching costs to move. He now rings his current bank every six months and he asks for a better deal on his mortgage. He is on a fully variable mortgage, which we call a floating rate here in New Zealand, and he was at 2.9% when we spoke. But one phone call on a Monday morning saw it lowered to 2.8%. It took just one phone call. A 0.1% drop in rate might not sound worth it, but when you still owe $250,000, John believes, and I agree, that any money you can save is worth it, every time. The credit card is dead and gone, and he now uses a debit card, and he pays no fees, none at all, for any of his banking, having managed to negotiate them away. I asked him how he felt giving up his credit card, given that we are trained from a young age that it's one of the necessities of life. He had one for a very long time, much like everyone else in the Western world, and he did wonder what is going to happen. But he cut it up and closed the account, and guess what? The world didn't come to an end. He got sold this idea of what you should be doing, and he said that it is so insidious how financial institutions get you in a debt cycle 
You just don't need a credit card. You can do all of your banking with a debit card and the rewards are simply a joke. He tells his kids, don't ever get one. I asked him a question I think I already knew the answer to. Does he budget? Of course he does. If you haven't worked it out yet from listening to my podcast, those who get ahead financially know exactly where their money is coming from and going to. He gets his pay each fortnight and as soon as it arrives, money flies out automatically to various accounts and bill payments. He has taken the time to set up automatic payments and transfers that coincide with his pay. Currently, he receives $3,842 a fortnight into his bank, plus bonuses, if any, which are added to this. $2,215 goes to his mortgage, leaving him with $1,627. 600 of this goes to his ex-partner. $100 goes to the babysitter. This leaves him with $927 that he has to try to make work for the fortnight, or $463.50 a week for all of his expenses such as food, power, transportation, rates, insurance and what have you. That amounts to $24,102 annually. He lives a simple and basic life yet all his needs are met. Going without is par for the course because his medium to long term financial goals are far, far more important than anything he fancies buying in the short term. He said that he is making himself poor on purpose and when he gets a pay rise, which is a planned and expected part of his job, getting about 3% of time, he uses the entire portion of the pay rise to go towards reducing that debt. John is finding money wherever he can and recently he was able to take four to six weeks of leave as cash, which he puts straight on the mortgage. He uses a mortgage chart and spreadsheet to track his progress to owning his own home 100%. And he really encourages you to do the same. Get a chart and physically follow your progress because it's hugely motivating to do so. In 2021, he paid about $57,000 off his mortgage balance, a fantastic achievement on a single income. With each payment, his interest payments will reduce, giving him more and more traction each and every time. And as for the most extravagant thing he has purchased for himself in the last 90 days, Well, he really splashed out. He bought a $20 blender from Kmart. He generally buys the cheapest thing he can get if he can get away with it and he can replace it easily if it breaks, but most of the time it works out. And what do you know? A smoothie tastes the same whether it's a $20 blender or a $500 blender. He has also recently moved to a vegetarian diet for health reasons and to make a lifestyle change, but it is having a lot of financial benefits too, he said. There is no lifestyle creep here. During COVID, they got a tax cut, which amounted to $50 a fortnight, and he put it straight on the mortgage. He does the same with extra cash through overtime. He said that you have to practice some self-discipline, which is an often underrated character trait. As soon as that extra putia arrives, move it away. Move it away so you are not tempted to waste it. He is systematic now, and he is so focused on walking through this phase of his life. When people hear of this type of situation where someone is so focused on a goal and they are sacrificing to achieve it, they'll instantly point out that they think it's a miserable way to spend a life. They think the person is putting on a brave face when really their life sucks, but they don't want to share that fact. But I think they are just admitting that they themselves couldn't be as disciplined as John is. The most important thing is that John is happy with where he is at currently. He doesn't want for anything. Considering how tough he was finding life before, 
This is a walk in a very nice park because he feels in control of his own life now. Finding contentment is key and he seems to have cracked it. He's come an immensely long way over the last few years and every payday he feels the pressure come off a bit. The way he spoke indicated to me that his children see him dealing with money in a certain way when they are together and it sounded very different to what they are seeing when they are with their mother. So how does he go about educating them around money, I wondered. He tries to keep his kids out of any conversation about the financial situation between him and his ex-partner, but it sounds like she doesn't afford them that same respect, making things tough to manage sometimes when his kids compare and comment on how each adult handles money. You have to be the grown-up in a situation like this, shielding your tamariki from things that they shouldn't be troubled with and teaching where you can. He said that kids learn by watching, so when they're with him, which is 50% of the time, he sets a good example. He could say what he likes, but that could go in one ear and out the other. Instead, they watch what he does. So when he's at the supermarket, he is looking at the bottom shelf specials. If they go out, he does take food or they eat when they return home. And he shows him simple ways to manage money. They are learning by his example. He is very transparent, telling them, this is what I get paid and this is what I owe the bank, in a calm and rational way. He is teaching them what things actually cost and how you can acquire money to pay for them. And this will help young children feel that they don't have to worry about dad. Dad's got this under control and it's good for kids to see that. In terms of setting them up with some financial systems for their own future, he is currently mulling it over and weighing up a few things, different strategies that he could use, particularly now that his eldest has just started high school. Already, if they are earning income, they are saving half, so he is establishing that mindset of a part of all you earn is yours to keep for the future. Given I have a child of a similar age, we actually ended up talking for quite a while about what I do and what all the different options are, but I think for now he is on the right track to just share with kids in a calm and educational way about how money plays a role in each of our lives. And my view on setting money aside for kids is that you can really only do it if you are stable yourself. In the meantime, just teach them good money habits using the little money that they do have. And although he shared with me something called the 18 for 18 challenge where a mum gave her son $1,800 if he stayed off social media till the age of 18, which he did and then apparently immediately signed up to Instagram, I'm more in favour of just creating a kids-sized version of how adults handle money. And as an adult, no one ever offered me a financial incentive to stay off social media. I repeatedly get offered a financial incentive called a regular income for going to work though. So keep it simple with small, actionable steps and rewards, not complicated ones. He is currently in the midst of many years of forking out a lot of money. Plus he is a very active parent, organising everything for his kids, school and sport, etc. But he said he comes from humble beginnings. And you don't need a lot of money to take kids to the park, to get books from the library or cook healthy food at home. While he says that money is important, in some ways it can also be irrelevant as a parent. He has found that just sitting down and reading a book can often be more rewarding than anything you spend money on. John said that when you have something bad happen to you, the silver lining, even though you probably can't see it at the time, is that there is opportunity in your future and he now has a 10-year plan. He is currently 48 years old. He will pay off his house within four years, at which time he will suddenly have this huge cash flow, getting to keep a much larger part of his take-home pay for the first time. 
and that's going to build up fast. John didn't set out to become fire, financially independent, retire early, but he has kind of fallen into that camp. Once his mortgage is gone, he can invest all of that freed up income into an index fund, and he reckons within 10 years, he could have enough invested to produce enough income to live on each year if he applies the 4% rule. Plus, he will have his super that he can access when he retires after 66. John said that one of the benefits of being single is that you are automatically precluded from keeping up with the Joneses, that couple you know who appears to have everything. He can step back and look at them with 20-20 vision, and if you dig into what they appear to have, in most instances he has found that they are in debt up to their eyeballs and stressed as they try to compete with other couples. Although it's hard to argue with the increase in house prices, so, so many of the people he knows who have investment properties are in debt up the wazoo. It's absolute speculation. They do it and get a thrill out of it and then go back for more, he said. There is a huge amount of FOMO as they all outborrow each other, both on housing and on consumer stuff like cars and what have you. But he just doesn't have the gonads for it. He has people he can talk to about money, but they are just on completely different runways. John, with his seemingly boring plan to be debt-free and make work optional in 10 years, and them with their all-guns-blazing plan of leveraging property and taking on debt, which ties them to their job. Although they talk about retiring early, unlike John, there is no written plan to actually ever make that happen. Once his mortgage is gone, he could buy another property, but he doesn't want to get into debt again, and he would much rather dollar-cost average his income into the share markets. The bank has had quite enough of his money, thank you very much. In 10 years' time, he wants to be in a position to not have to work if he doesn't want to, and he is on the right track to make that his reality. This would give him options, and for now, he is content to live a certain way for a short period of time. Dave Ramsey, another podcaster he follows, always says that if you live like no one else now, then later you get to live like no one else. For years, he has applied the principles of both Scott Pape and Dave Ramsey, and it's working. He has made huge gains in a short period of time. So if I had asked him the question, if you were given $10,000 right now, what would you do with it? When he was still in a relationship and his kids were little, he would have blown the lot on a holiday. But given what life has served up to him, he has been given one heck of a fright. In my experience, that is what it takes to make people make drastic changes. So if a fat 10k dropped in his account today, he would put it on the mortgage because he is so much in the rhythm of things now that I don't think he could stop if he tried. In a way, this scenario is not as far-fetched as I thought it would be because although he has a good career with a good employer and some fixed 3% pay rises on the horizon, and COVID has meant he can work from home a couple of days a week, thereby reducing his twice-daily one-hour commute, COVID has taught him that you give up a huge chunk of your life at work. That is why when he heard that there is the potential for a redundancy offer at work, which could mean a potential after-tax payout of about $150,000, he is investigating it further. So you heard that right. Between now and March of 2023, when these redundancies may take effect, he will have paid a further $50,000 off his mortgage, bringing it down to the $200,000 mark. A redundancy payment could be a real game changer for John. And I have to say that all I could see when he mentioned this to me was an upside. He is educated 
and employable and he could easily have a new job lined up to go straight to as he left the old one. He would never miss a paycheck. He could just smash that payout on his mortgage and keep on moving and within less than a year of working a new job, he would be mortgage free. All he sees is an opportunity and I found this to be a really exciting chance for him. And then I realised that both he and I are in quite a different headspace from his colleagues. When talk of redundancy comes up in the office, even those with two full-time incomes coming into their household have too much debt, meaning that they can't even consider leaving their job. The thought of redundancy is frightening to them, not exciting, far from it, which I thought was quite fascinating. So how about his three main financial habits, those things that he just automatically does? Well, number one, if there is something he has to do or buy, he learned from his mum to be resourceful. You have to make the most of what you have already got. Before spending money, he asks himself, does he have to do this or is there some other way around it? Number two, with raising kids, food is such a big part of their lives. When out and about, it would be easy to say, hey, let's just go to McDonald's. But if they can get home and eat, then that's what they'll do. It saves a lot of money and he knows that if you can save the pennies, yep, those pounds, they're going to save themselves. Number three, Pay yourself a base rate, a minimum amount to cover your basic outgoings. Anything above that can be used to thrash your debt. He's so focused on making the most of every dollar, and it's not surprising really, the guy has a degree in pure math after all. He is working in a big, intense job. So what is the point of blowing it on coffee and takeaways every day? What a wasted opportunity. So that all flows nicely into his money elevator pitch, or that sentence that would sum up his approach to money. It is simply. Am I making the most of what I've got? You have to celebrate the wins too. So what does John consider to be his biggest financial triumph? Without a doubt, it's taking back control of his money and therefore his life. He now has a healthy scepticism for the banking industry and he can't wait to be done with owing them money. And his greatest financial flop is the same as many of us. It was not being aware of money years ago. He was just cruising, going through the motions, not being aware and not thinking much about it. Now, he doesn't want to be too harsh on himself because sometimes you have to go through some kind of trauma to learn, but necessity is the mother of all invention. But going through a separation and financial trauma meant he had to come up with something on his own to change his situation. Otherwise, he would have remained stuck. I think that even if Scott Pape himself had arrived on his doorstep on day one, still nothing would have changed until John himself decided he was ready to change. So in regards to money, is there anything keeping John awake at night? He said that he thinks about money all the time, but in a good way, and he no longer stresses about money. So how good is that? There are more important things, such as his kids, to occupy his mind and his time now. Throughout these last four years, I wondered if he ever sought the help of a financial advisor as he tried to find his way. He said that his superannuation fund gave him one free session, as did his bank, And they each gave him vague financial advice. At the moment, he feels on the right track, but maybe when he is debt-free, he might reassess this, and he might add the advice of a third party to his own research. In the meantime, though, he is trying to make himself as smart as he possibly can, which is an excellent and very effective strategy. Given that he has read so much, what book, podcast, or blog does he recommend, or what advice might he have for others, particularly single dads who can be a forgotten demographic? He said to have a few people in your life to check in with, to check each other's progress and to talk about things. 
If you're planning a purchase, chat to others on the same wavelength as you and get their thoughts. You'll either get encouragement from them or a wake-up call. Just having people you can talk to who are not idiots is important. He said that at his workplace, most people have an investment property, nice cars on payments and a ton of debt. He knows this because they are all pretty vocal about it, each rushing around in the pursuit of more. And there is this one guy who dresses kind of plain and doesn't say all that much, but he listens to all the office banter and just takes it all in, flying under the radar. John knows for a fact that this particular guy is minted. He owns two houses outright and has millions in his super and millions in his share investments. So his advice to you and I is don't be impressed by the guy driving the Audi. He will still be making payments on it. Instead, be impressed and start a conversation with this guy. These are the people who can teach you something. As for authors, he likes the work of Noel Whitaker and has emailed him a few times and found him to be really helpful. Anything by both Scott Pape and Dave Ramsey, of course. The Barefoot Investor is, he said, a layman's practical guide and a must-read, and I agree. Plus, American writer Vicky Robbins wrote the book Your Money or Your Life. He follows Christy and Bryce from the blog Millennial Revolution, plus Australian podcaster and blogger the very awesome Aussie Firebug. The old book, The Millionaire Next Door, and all of these resources showed him that you don't have to be special to succeed. People just like him can come from really humble beginnings and make something of your life. All you have to do is set a few things up and let time do its work. So righto, before I wrap up, I have another quick message from today's sponsor. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Thanks so much to John for speaking with me. I bet that when you first emailed me, you didn't anticipate ending up on my podcast, but I'm so happy you said yes, and you got to share the often unheard side of a divorce, the bloke's side, so that you could help other people who are going through something similar. Years ago, I met a really hard case guy who said to me he was on his GST marriage back when GST was 12.5% in New Zealand, which had me looking at him a bit oddly. What on earth was he on about? He explained it this way, and I've never forgotten it. He and his first wife built up assets of $100,000 for argument's sake. When they divorced, he came out with 50% or $50,000. Lucky him, he fell in love all over again. But sadly, a second divorce was to follow, halving his money to just 25% or $25,000. But what a lucky guy. Love had struck him a third time, and by God, he was planning to make this one last, he said. There was no way he wanted to halve his money again and end up with just $12,500 or 12.5%. It was a funny story as he told it, but it was the best example I've seen of how financially crippling divorce can be for both parties. And in the case of John, he is two relationships down already. As he found out the hard way, your choice of spouse can be incredibly important. And being on the same page with money, actually discussing money is so important too. If there is a next time, and I'm sure there will be, he was a really nice guy, I think things will be different for John. He has been battered and bruised financially and emotionally, and it's taken years for the smoke to clear, but he finally has some clarity about where he is headed, and he has plans in place to get there. Those are attractive things in a spouse. And now, with two kids relying on him, 
he knows he has to set a good example for them as well as talk about what he has been through with other single dads so that they can rebuild their lives as well. His kids are his focus, seeing them grow up healthy, happy and strong is the key, but he can only do that if he is in a good place himself, both emotionally and financially, which through self-education, feeling annoyed enough to make a change and sheer determination, he has done. When we spoke, he said that when his father passed away, his mum had no choice but to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And all these years later, John has made the choice to do exactly the same because that is just what you have to do. And with each step, he is making progress, really good progress, great progress. By taking consistent action over a long period of time, he is creating a better life and a strong and stable future for himself and his kids. And as he so succinctly said, he is no longer at the mercy of fate. So all the very best and please do stay in touch, John. So that's all from me this week. If you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com. And of course, I would love it if you could leave me a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And please do share it with your friends. It is the best way that people can learn about the podcast. And I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and whanau and continue to help me help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. Happy saving.